Imagine your grandparent sits you down at the end of their life and imagine they share all their wisdom with you knowing that their death will come soon. There would be a sense of urgency. You would pay rapt attention. You would soak up all the wisdom that you could get. The imminence of death always brings eternity into perspective, which would be all the more reason to listen very closely to your grandparent. Well, this is really the context of the book of 2 Peter. The apostle Peter is near the end of his life. He has fought the good fight. He has run the race with endurance. As we see in verse 14 of chapter one, the putting off of his body will be soon. And so he writes as as a dying man with a sense of urgency but also as one who does not, one who is not without hope. And so as we study this epistle together, I want you to hear the words of the Apostle Peter inspired by the Holy Spirit framed in these terms as a dying man on his deathbed, the words of a wise grandfather to his grandchild. Now a little bit of background on the epistle of 2 Peter. Uh, 2 Peter is one of seven general epistles or Catholic epistles. And these are letters that are not written to a specific church, like the church in Rome or the church in Corinth. But these are letters that are written to the, the churches at large. And the major issue that the apostle Peter addresses in this letter is false teaching. It was likely written sometime around 60 AD during a period where false teaching, a twisting of doctrine, twisting of scripture had had began to, to seep into the life of the church. And Peter's aim in writing this letter was to remind the flock of God, don't waver to the left or to the right. Press on in righteousness and holiness, press, press on. And one of the common refrains that we'll hear throughout this epistle is uh, the imperative to pursue holiness, to pursue a life of holiness. In fact, the theme of this entire epistle is summarized in chapter three, 2 Peter chapter three, verses 13 and 14, where the apostle writes these words, but according to to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. In other words, the whole book of Second Peter is about remembering that because Christ will return to judge the living and the dead, We must make every effort to pursue holiness and to redeem the time that we've been given, always living with the end in mind. And right from the outset, I want to give you a helpful paradigm for thinking through how we handle uh, this constant refrain of imperatives that we'll find throughout throughout this epistle. The Apostle Peter is not advocating for a works based righteousness. He is not a legalist. 
No, Peter is simply reminding us of the basic gospel truth that Jesus reminds us of in in Matthew chapter seven. Good trees will bear good fruit. If you are a good tree, if you are abiding in Christ, you will bear good fruit. And you should make every effort to bear good fruit in keeping with repentance. As our Westminster Confession puts it in chapter 16, our good works are the evidence of both a lively and a true faith. Our good works are not the instrument of our salvation, but they are necessary fruits of salvation nonetheless. And as chapter 16 of our confession says, our good, our good works are actually acceptable in Christ. So as you hear these imperatives of living out the gospel throughout 2 Peter, remember that it is a good and godly thing to pursue righteousness and holiness. And orthodoxy must always lead to orthopraxy. Otherwise, it is simply dead orthodoxy. Right doctrine must always lead to right living. Otherwise, it is simply dead doctrine. Well, Peter writes as a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, verse one, and we no longer have the office of apostle today, although in the Reformed tradition we see aspects of continuity between uh, ministers and apostles. But the divinely authoritative office of apostleship has ceased with the apostolic age. And it's wonderful for us to look at the life of the apostle Peter and see how the gospel transformed his life and how it can transform ours. Peter once denied Christ three times. I do not know the man, he said of Christ when confronted. Peter denied his Lord and Savior, denied the very one who would experience the horrors of Calvary for his sake. And yet God's grace confounds the apostle Peter and he repents. And God uses Peter as an instrument in the upbuilding of of his church, both in the early age of the church and in every age of the church that guards the apostolic faith until Christ returns. Peter was faithful to heed the words of Jesus until the end. Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. And Jesus' prophecy of Peter's death in John chapter 21 comes to pass in 64 AD under the persecution of the church by the emperor Nero. The apostle Peter dies a martyr and his death reminds us that to pick up our cross and to follow Jesus Christ always costs us something. If we are faithful in guarding the apostolic deposit of faith, if we are faithful in running the race with endurance, not veering to the left or to the right. Jesus tells us that we will face tribulation in this life. If the world hates you, Jesus said, remember that it hated me first. To be a Christian as we see in the life of the apostle Peter is to be baptized into the sufferings of Christ. He describes this in his first epistle in chapter four. 
And this was all the more real, not, not only for the Apostle Peter, but in the first few centuries of the early church. This was a very pointed reality. To, to be a Christian cost you something. An early church father once said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And this is true, that, that God greatly used the bold faith of men and women, even unto martyrdom, to expand his kingdom. We must never take for granted the freedom that God affords us to exercise our faith publicly. It is a gift from God. We live in an age of prosperity where many people claim to be Christians, but in reality live as pagans. This is called Christian nominalism. And God despises this. Those who are lukewarm will be spit out, says Jesus in Revelation chapter three. Well, Peter goes on to specify who this epistle is addressed to. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The apostle Peter writes to those who are fellow heirs of the kingdom of God, to Christian brothers and sisters. And I don't want for us to pass over this phrase, a faith of equal standing with ours. You see, this equality of faith that Peter speaks about, it's, it's not the faith of a person, right? Some people may have a stronger faith than others. The equality of this faith, rather, as John Calvin puts it, is that all possess by faith the same Christ with his righteousness and the same salvation. And so the content of the faith, the the content of our faith, the content of faith for every Christian is the equal measure, the fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's the content of our faith. Jesus does not come in different sizes for different people. It's not like McDonald's where you have the large size, super size, medium, small, snack size. No, there is, there is no discrimination or distinction in the content of our faith. There is only superabundance. Jesus Christ in his fullness and glory gives you and I an equal measure of his grace. And we also see from this verse that there are no second class citizens in the kingdom of God. The world is riddled with partiality, but the church must not be. Our common faith means that we are all one in Christ. In the church, all worldly divisions and distinctions ought to be transcended. Dr. Burke Parsons describes this beautifully. He says that the local church is the only place on earth where little children, the elderly, families, singles, widows, adopted orphans, all of different different ancestries, colors, and socioeconomic backgrounds come together to sing songs of victory, partake of one supper, and confess one faith. That is the great picture of the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, all one in Christ. Well, I want you to notice as well that that Peter compares our faith with 
the apostolic faith. He says, a faith of equal standing with ours. And this is important because as we confess in our creed and as the apostle Peter will contend, our faith is apostolic. It it is a common faith of the universal church. We, together with the apostles, affirm and confess universal truths about God, about salvation, and about his church. And Peter wants to remind us that the faith of equal standing is itself the apostolic faith. In Jude chapter one, we're reminded of our common salvation and the faith that is once for all delivered to the saints. And if our faith is out of step with the faith revealed in holy scriptures, the faith of the apostles, if our faith veers to the right or to the left, follows this heresy or that heresy, our souls fall into grave danger. Our common faith carries on in the train of apostolic tradition. As one great church historian, Yaroslav Pelikan once said, tradition is the living faith of the dead and traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. You see, the apostolic faith continues to be the living faith of the dead, the dead apostles, in the church today. So long as we remain faithful to the word of God, so long as we remain faithful to the sacred deposit. There's a temptation for us within the Reformed tradition to think that we have a monopoly on truth. And while it is good and right that we are convinced that our understanding of the Bible is the most faithful to the scriptures, uh, we must be wary of looking down our noses at fellow believers who, who may, may disagree with us on secondary matters, right? Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer that we would be one, speaking of his church, that we would be one as Jesus and the Father are one, Jesus wants that spirit of unity in his church today. And so we must be on guard against a schism or tribalism, identifying ourselves with various tribes within the church. I follow Apollos, I follow Paul. We confess every Lord's Day that we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That means that we recognize that the kingdom of God is much bigger than only reformed Protestantism. There won't just be reformed Protestants in the new heavens and the new earth. So our apostolic faith is granted to us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And actually, this, this verse, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, uh, is regarded by scholars as one of the most significant passages in the Bible when it comes to Christology. And that's because Jesus Christ is explicitly called God here. In the original Greek, uh, the noun God and the noun Jesus share one article, which mean that they speak of one and the same person. Jesus is God. So the next time that a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door, uh, you can open up your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, and point them to the Greek text and then 
pray that they would confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Well, the Apostle Peter continues in verses two and three, and look with me at the importance of the knowledge of God, the knowledge of God. Within the evangelical world today, we often see faith pitted against doctrine. I've heard Christians say things like, well, I I just feel Jesus in my heart, and that's all I need. Doctrine has no practical value for my life. But brothers and sisters, when we understand what it means to know God, we see that this is necessarily a false dichotomy between doctrine and faith. When we understand that knowing God means communion with him, and and I'll get more into this in verse four when we talk about partaking of the divine nature, but when we understand that knowing God means communion with the triune God himself, we see that that doctrine and experiential religion go hand in hand. You, You can't have one without the other. Let me illustrate this for you. What if I told you that I know my wife, that I have knowledge of her? And what if I then proceeded to tell you that after we got married, I never talked to her again for five years, I never got to know her more, I never asked her questions about herself, I never made a concerted effort to try to understand her likes, dislikes. You would simply laugh at me. You would say, Josiah, you don't know your wife. You don't know her at all. And you would be right. And, and, and the sense of knowledge that the Apostle Peter is describing is a knowledge that doesn't stop at a fundamental level. It, it grows deeper and wider and more vast as we plumb the depths of the glory and the riches of God himself. Peter uses a a specific word here for knowledge. It's a, there's two Greek words for knowledge, one that's more general, one that's more particular. This is the more particular word, uh, and it speaks, as one commentator puts it, of a knowledge that is larger and more thorough. Jesus says in John 17, verse three, that This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You you see, eternal life is knowing God. It's communion with God. It's knowing Jesus Christ himself. And as we see in verse two, true knowledge of Jesus Christ results in the abundance of grace and peace. When we know Jesus Christ, when our intimate communion with God is like that of Abraham, who who was a friend of God, the scriptures say, we experience God's grace and his peace, which surpasses all understanding. Well, look with me at verse three. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Now notice the apostle Peter doesn't say that the divine power of God has granted to us some things that that pertain to life and godliness. No, 
He says, Jesus Christ has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's all encompassing. God does not withhold any good thing from his children. Now, I think this verse is particularly important to us in the 21st century because our world is a world of industry. We are busying ourselves to death. Our, Our calendars are jammed packed and we get sucked into the panic and craze of doing more and more. And very often we can treat God or our faith in this very industrious way. We think of our Christian life as just a checklist. Just do this thing, just go to that Bible study, go to that missions talk, go to church, read this Christian book. And of course, these are very important, God-honoring things to pursue. But we can't fall into the trap of thinking that by just doing more or that by having a secret edge, we will become more spiritually mature. No, spiritual maturity recognizes that that we already have all that we need for life and godliness. God has given us his word. He's given us his very son. And his word is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. God has given us prayer as a way for us to seek him in the hour of temptation. He's given us his spirit to equip us to fight sin, to put to death the enemy. God does not leave us high and dry. And he furnishes us with his church as well as a means of presenting us mature in Christ. The the church is a precious gift to the believer. We believe in the ordinary means of grace. Bible studies are good things. Programs are good things. But we could take those all away and our souls would still be nourished because the ordinary means of grace are supernatural instruments that are unique to corporate worship. The ordinary means of grace are hardly ordinary, but they simply mean that that week in and week out, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, God's word and God's sacraments feed and strengthen his people. The Reformed tradition holds that God is specially present with his people on the Lord's Day in corporate worship, here, now. Yes, God is always present in our hearts. Yes, God is present where two or three are gathered. But all the same, we believe that God is uniquely present in corporate worship on the Lord's Day that is distinct from all other gatherings. And this is a gift from God. Worship is is an encounter with our divine Lord. He grants to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And he grants us all things through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Beloved in Christ, never forget this basic gospel truth. Never forget that we have all that we need for life and godliness because Christ has first called us. We love him because he first loved us. He is the one who summons us by his electing grace, right? We, we, we don't meet 
God halfway. He breathes life into these dead bones. The knowledge of God in Christ is the greatest gift we could ever imagine. As the Apostle Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter two, by grace we have been saved by faith and it is purely the gift of God, not a result of works. Well, Peter goes on in verse four to speak of the precious and great promises given to those who have a knowledge and faith in Jesus Christ. And these promises are indeed both precious and great. Charles Spurgeon has a great line here. He says, many things are great that are not precious, such as great rocks, which are of little value. On the other hand, many things are precious that are not great, such as diamonds and other jewels, which cannot be very great if they are very precious. But here we have promises that are so great that they are not less than infinite and so precious that they are not less than divine. These promises that are both precious and great, they find their end in the gospel. They find their end in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the yes and amen of every promise that we find in the Old Testament. The promise is that we who were once sinful, having believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are cleansed, forgiven, and we are being conformed into the likeness of Christ. We are justified, adopted, and we will be glorified. Now this is where we get into some tricky uh, theological waters here because the apostle Peter says that through these promises we become partakers of the divine nature, verse four. Now what does this mean? What, what, What does it mean to become a partaker of the divine nature? Well, there are basically three schools of thought here, and I'll begin with uh, two, two views on either side of the spectrum. On the one side, you have this idea of deification. Partaking of the divine nature means becoming God. And this position would be held by some within the Eastern Orthodox tradition. On the other, on the other side, partaking of the divine nature for some within the church today refers only to our future state of glorification, to that which awaits us in the new heavens and the new earth. Only then will we share in Christ's nature. And the third view, which is representative of of the Reformed tradition, and and it's somewhere in the middle of that spectrum between deification and uh, it's only speaking about that which is to come, the Reformed view Uh, which we find in Calvin and others, is uh, that there's an already and not yet aspect to our partaking of the divine nature. There's an already and a not yet aspect to our partaking of the divine nature. There are both present and future implications. Now, in the present, we we already enjoy the benefits of divine participation because of our union with Christ, right? The benefits being our justification, 
his righteousness imputed to us, the gift of faith, our sanctification, right? And and in our union with Christ, as we read in Ephesians, means that we died with the Lord Jesus Christ, that we were buried with the Lord Jesus Christ, that we were resurrected with him, that we ascended with him. All the benefits in the heavenly places of Christ belong to us through our union with him. The Christian who experiences the new birth has the spirit of God dwelling within them. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter eight, verse nine. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. For as the apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter two, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So this is the already reality of our participation with Christ. Our participation means that his righteousness becomes our righteousness, that our sin becomes his sin, and that his life becomes our life. As John Calvin writes, let us then mark that the end of the gospel is to render us eventually conformable to God. And if we may so speak, to deify us. But the word nature is not here essence, but quality. So partaking of the divine nature, it doesn't conflate our nature with God's nature, right? We must always maintain the distinction between our creator and the creature. But we can say that the end of the Christian life is communion with God, which ends with our, with our perfect conformity to the image of Christ in the glorified state. It's, it's already here in seed form, but will be completed and fulfilled in perfection at the end. And in our union with Christ, Peter goes on to remind us that we will grow in sanctification. Verse four, he says, we become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. You see, false teachers in Peter's day thought that we were redeemed through knowledge and that you could go on to live however you please, that you could go on living in sinful desire. But, but Peter demonstrates here to us that to participate To become partakers of the divine nature means that if you are in Christ, you can no longer live in sin. If you are in Christ, you must all the more seek to put to death the sin that so easily ensnares. If you are justified, if you are declared righteous, you will walk in newness of life. You will grow in the grace of sanctification. Brothers and sisters, being partakers of the divine nature, participation in the life of God itself is of inestimable value. And every time we gather as God's people around his table, we experience a profound and transcendent communion with God himself. It's interesting here in verse four, Peter uses the same root word partakers uh, that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 10 
to speak about our participation with Christ in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And so the bread and the wine are a foretaste of heavenly realities. But even now, Christ offers himself to us really and truly in communion as we partake by faith. We have participation in the body of Christ. And this is why we proclaim the mystery of our faith after partaking of the elements because our naked eye cannot perceive the spiritual reality, the spiritual reality that Christ nourishes our, our very souls. And what a gift of grace it is for us to commune with the living God. And if you don't know your creator, the Lord and giver of life, if you haven't experienced the joy of living in communion with him as you were created to do, I would invite you to press, press into your heart, look inside and consider our risen Lord and Savior. Consider your own sin. Consider his holiness. Consider the grace that he offers to you in the gospel and the participation that he provides in the divine life. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for revealing us, revealing to us your very self, revealing your divine nature. We thank you that you have made us participants in that divine nature, that we have communion with you, that we have fellowship with you by the power of your Holy Spirit. Oh Lord, help us to find contentment in knowing that you give us all that we need for life and godliness, that you do not withhold from us. And oh Lord, we pray that you would send us out into the world as heralds of your gospel message, that we would be the aroma of Christ in a world that is perishing. This we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.